Welcome to our Sunday show. My name is Janine Moloff, and I am the producer and host of Progressive News Network and the Environmental Justice Report, both on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we've got an interesting show here tonight. Uh, I was going to follow the Women's March and all these other things going on, and then I decided, you know, everybody's doing that. But the one thing that's been dominating the news, but really in a very uh, deceptive way, has been this whole issue with the debt ceiling. And it affects all of us. You know, right now we have, and if you, if you see the advert, the advert says debt ceiling lies. Lies are in all caps. So I'm, yes, I'm yelling it. And the plan to end Social Security. And this has everything to do with the MAGA morons of the GOP and how Kevin McCarthy has basically knuckled under so that he can gain power for himself. So the intro very simply is this. The GOP is determined and has always been determined to end Social Security and Medicare slash Medicaid, but this time using the debt ceiling device as a way to hold the entire U.S. government economically hostage. Make no mistake about this, Kevin McCarthy and his cohorts are, again, determined to extract savage cuts to these programs, So that, and they're fine with tanking the good faith, the good faith credit of the U.S. government and possibly tanking the entire world economy. Make no mistake about it. Um, their plan is to cause chaos. And that has been the plan of conservatives for a long time now. So that, you know, again, to totally blame Kevin McCarthy and the MAGA morons is really not quite fair. Yes, they have a big, they have, they bear a lot of blame here. Make no mistake about it. Kevin McCarthy is a wanton coward who basically bent over to the MAGA morons and let them have their way with him, so to speak. Yes, I'm using sexual sexual innuendo here uh, so that he could become speaker and the GOP of Trump could get these major concessions. But let's be honest about this. This has been going on for a long time now. The Republican Party has always wanted to destroy Medicare and Social Security. From its very beginning, FDR himself complained against what he called the economic royalist. All right? But, you know, once again, this is what's happening. And so, you know, we can go back to, I think it was the 80s, and Grover Norquist, who is mainstream GOP, make no mistake about it. He dates back to both Bush administrations, as well as the Heritage, Heritage Foundation. And he used to basically brag about how his goal was to reduce the federal government to the point that you could literally drown it in a bathtub. So today's show will explain the debt ceiling and the associated lies the GOP has fed to achieve their singular goal, which is to, one, force the average American to work until they drop dead, then deny them health care when they do become deathly ill, and All this so they can give not just tax breaks, so that the very rich pay no taxes at all. Make no mistake about it. There there are some solutions to this, and we're going to discuss those as well. Um, 
And then we will have our Jackass of the Week Award. And it was difficult this week um, for so many worthy candidates. Have a little tea here. I'm enjoying my chrysanthemum tea. It's really good if you have respiratory issues like me. So let's get to it. So I'm going to go to my documentation. And, again, we've had a few callers in the past, and, you know, it's funny. They, they, these gentlemen will refer to my program as my monologue. That's not a monologue. You know, the gentleman that said that clearly doesn't understand what a monologue is. You know, a monologue is when you're basically talking just to hear yourself talk. You're the only one talking, and it really is based in opinion. Everything I do here, as casual as may sound, has quite a bit of documentation behind it. You know, just does. So let's look at this. So we're going to go to our first story here. And, and again, to put this in a better framework, we've got a couple things going on here. And I know people are tired of hearing about the debt ceiling, but it's very real. All right. There's three main themes here. One, there's the issue of the debt ceiling and the role that it would play in basically uh, mandating savage cuts to specifically Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid because that's what McCarthy demanded. That's it. And I guess the Republicans think their voters are so incredibly stupid that they will be fine with slitting their own throats economically as they watch their their Social Security and Medicare go, bye-bye. That's one theme. Another theme has to do with corporate media and how they keep pushing not only a false equivalency argument between the two major parties, but really horse race reporting. Okay? Horse race reporting is has taken the place of real journalism. It's taken the place of providing facts to the average American that they need. And this reflects on the fact that we no longer have um, what well, we used to have, the Fairness Doctrine. Okay, uh, Ronald Reagan got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, and with that we saw the rise of Fox and uh, other groups that are even – that are even more propagandistic than Fox. Make no mistake about it. Um, And so, you know, we need to return to the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine demanded that there would be a minimum number of hours that were dedicated to reporting actual news, documentation. And Ronald Reagan got rid of it. So for those of you that think, that want to believe uh, the whitewashed history and paint Ronald Reagan as he was socially liberal but fiscally conservative, and he really didn't do much harm. Hogwash. Ronald Reagan knew, or at least the people that ran him knew what they were doing. Ronald Reagan in some ways did more harm to the United States even than Trump because he got rid of that fairness doctrine. There's a reason why journalism is the fourth state. How in the hell do you do you people know what's going on if you don't get honest reporting? Keep in mind, honest reporting is about facts. You may not like it, but that's just the reality. So let's go to our first story here, and this is a piece from PBS, Public Broadcasting. I'm scrolling down because tonight I don't have as much documentation as I normally have. Normally, 
I have closer to 10,000 words that I've downloaded. This time it's a little over 4,000. Okay. So this was a piece that was um, written by Stephen Pressman in the, for a publication called The Conversation. It was rerun in PBS, Public Broadcasting. And this was published January 18, 2023, and it's an analysis piece. Uh, and Pressman just wrote the headline, Analysis, What is the Debt Ceiling? So this piece really deals with defining and explaining what the debt ceiling is. Now, a little more tea. The debt ceiling didn't exist until a little over 100 years ago. And it was enacted by members of Congress in 1917 so that President Woodrow Wilson at the time would have funding for World War I. And this was a time period when members of Congress uh, had a hard – it took a long time to travel between their home districts and, you know, D.C. So this was kind of a stopgap measure. Uh, it should never have been kept, but it was. So once again, and Pressman writes the following, and I think this is a, a really good um, statement here, so I'm going to read it exactly as is. Quote, Republicans and Democrats are again preparing to play a game of chicken over the U.S. debt ceiling with the nation's financial stability at stake, end quote. Very succinct way of putting it. Even if, say, you're well off and Social Security would be a nice extra and you don't really need it per se, you're a wealthy person, you've got good investments in the stock market, screwing with the debt ceiling is basically saying that members of Congress, especially members of the House under McCarthy's stewardship and leadership, are toying with the idea that they're not going to let the president pay incurred debt, not pay our bills. Now, keep in mind that the, the actual debt ceiling is about paying debt that we've already incurred, that we already owe. This is not about new money at all. The debt ceiling is a tool used to go, hmm, are we going to pay our bills or not? And if there's a stall, if there's a failure, not only will it tank the credit rating and the good faith credit rating of the United States, tumble stocks worldwide. So unless you are, you know, someone like, oh, um, you know, uh, oh, God, the guy, Jeff Bezos, someone along those lines is super rich. But you're moderately wealthy. You need to be worried about this because the way they're screwing the debt ceiling, yes, it could tumble your investments. If you care nothing about your fellow human beings, understand that. Okay? So let's talk about, according to this article, again, by Stephen Press, Pressman from The Conversation, this is an analysis piece. Uh, it explained how the Treasury Department, on January 13, 2023, made the announcement that they expect the U.S. to hit the current debt limit of $31.38 trillion, with a T, on January 19th. Okay, now you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at the calendar and know we're past that. And this is as documented by Reuters.com. 
okay, the current debt limit, okay? If the government doesn't take what the Treasury Department coined as, quote, extraordinary measures to extend the deadline until like May or June, then the United States could default on, again, debt that we already owe. We're not talking about new money. So when Kevin McCarthy stands there and says, you shouldn't spend more than you can afford, he knows he's telling a lie of omission. The debt ceiling is about debt we already owe. Okay? And what is the Republican plan to shore that up? They're not going to raise taxes. No, they want to savagely slash Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, especially Social Security. Now, again, more Republican lies. Social Security has absolutely zero to do with the national debt. Social Security is a separate program. In fact, it's – and when they call it an entitlement, it implies that it's welfare. It's not. It's an insurance policy. The Republicans, in theory – are toying with the idea of committing insurance fraud, you could argue, my opinion. So what is actually going on here? So they are playing this game to see which one is going to – they're playing economic chicken. Who's going to blink first, President Biden, uh, the Senate Democrats, or the Republicans in the House? And not just in the House, the Republicans in the Senate as well. Okay. Now, it has gone on record that Biden and Senate Democrats are going to reject this, and that is actually is documented, ironically, by FoxBangor.com. Um, what they call right-wing Republicans demanded, uh, and I'm just reading straight from this now, quote, right-wing, de- quote, right-wing Republicans demanded that in exchange for voting for Kevin McCarthy, a Speaker of the House, he would seek steep government spending cuts as a condition of raising the borrowing limit. And that is as documented by RollCall.com. Now, the guy who wrote this article for the conversation, Stephen Pressman, is actually an economist himself. Okay? And you can look up him at www.mon... Okay, I need my, my magnifier. I'm having a hard time seeing this here. Let me make it a little bigger. Yeah, here we go. You can look him up at Monmouth, M-O-N-M-O-U-T-H dot edu. Okay, Stephen Pressman. So Mr. Pressman is an economist, so it's not like we're talking about Kevin McCarthy or some other dim-witted GOPer. So Pressman in this piece explains what the death ceiling is, why we have it, and then according to this article, it says, quote, economist Stephen Pressman, I'm just reading straight from it, explains what the debt ceiling is and why we have it and why it's time to abolish it, end quote. And he goes through this article in plain terms. What is the debt ceiling? So governments we know have to borrow when they spend more money than they receive, and nobody likes having taxes raised. Okay? Keep in mind also... The MAGA morons also want to eliminate the income tax, which that's an aside, but their replacement ta- way of paying for things would be like, I think I think the, uh, the figure I saw quoted was between 23 and 30% um, of 
of a sales tax. Can you can you imagine spending anywhere between, let's say, 25 and 30 percent just on sales tax? That would be increased taxes for the rest of us, but the rich would get off scot-free. So again, according to economist Steve Pressman, the debt ceiling happens. You know, governments have to borrow more than they spend. Um, they, Okay, let me start again, start and stutter here. Governments have to borrow when they spend more money than they take in. How do they do that? Well, they issue bonds, okay? I've bought savings bonds. Now, a bond is an IOU that, quote, promises to repay the money in the future and make regular interest payments. You see this all the time. You know, if a school district runs a campaign for a bond issue, what do you think that is? So that your kid's school's you know, can have better facilities. That's all it is. Government debt, according to Pressman, and this is as documented by, oh, God, I can't see this. I really need new glasses. As documented by fred.stlouisfed.org, quote, government debt is the total sum of all this borrowed money. Okay, this goes on to say, quote, the debt ceiling, which Congress established a century ago, is the maximum amount the government can borrow. It's a limit on the national debt, end quote. So that sounds very reasonable on the surface, I admit it. So what's the national debt? Pressman gives this this, uh, explanation. He says, you know, as of January 10th, 2023, all U.S. government debt was $30.92 trillion with a T, Okay. And that is documented by fsapps.fiscal.treasury.gov. And that's some approximately 22% more than, quote, the value of all goods and services that will be produced in the U.S. economy this year. Okay? Now, he goes on to explain, and I think I'm just going to read straight from this because he just he gets straight to it. Quote, around one quarter of this money the government actually owes itself. I'm going to read that one again. Quote, around one quarter of this money, the government actually owes itself, which if you owe it to yourself, how could this be a debt? But let me go on. It goes on to say, quote, the Social Security Administration has accumulated a surplus and invests the extra money, currently $2.8 trillion with a T, in government bonds. It goes on to say, quote, and the Federal Reserve holds $5.5 trillion with a T in U.S. Treasuries. Quote, end quote. And it goes on to say the rest is public debt. Okay. So right now, 25% of the national debt is money that the government owes itself. Let me get a little more tea here. So that's basically between uh, paying back the money Social Security lent as an investment, as well as paying back the Federal Reserve. Okay. It goes on to say, quote, as of October 2022, foreign countries, companies and individuals own $7.2 trillion of U.S. government debt, end quote, uh, apparently, China and Japan are the largest holders of our debt, with around one trillion each. Here's the kicker: quote, the rest 
is owed to U.S. citizens and businesses as well as state and local governments. I have to, end quote. I have to read that one again. Look at what this national debt is. If you play games with the the figures here, okay, you got thirty point nine two trillion. I've got a little calculator here, and then we'll take away two point eight trillion. That's Social Security lent, okay, and then five point five trillion the U.S. Reserve, and. Seven point two trillion, another two trillion. So more than half of it, the rest, quote, is owed to U.S. citizens and businesses, as well as state and local governments. End quote. So the people that are going to be really defrauded by this, by the proposed actions of McCarthy's GOP are U.S. citizens, U.S. businesses, state and local governments. So then, okay, Pressman goes on to ask, why is there a borrowing limit? And as I explained before, before 1917, Congress could authorize uh, the government. Government could borrow a certain amount of money for a fixed specified time period. And then once the loan was repaid, the government couldn't borrow again um unless they asked Congress for approval. But, again, Woodrow Wilson was ready to enter World War I, and so along came the Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917, and that's the act that created the debt ceiling. And, again, that's according to his document by www.federalreservehistory.org. And this changes. That Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917, quote, allowed a continual rollover of debt without congressional approval. Okay? Now, Congress let them Congress said, "Okay, we'll do this because, you know, once again it was hard for congressmen to get back to DC in an emergency such as war." Okay? And the debt ceiling has been raised, you know, dozens of times. Now, Let's Pressman goes on to say explain what happens when the US hits the ceiling. Okay? Good question. So right now the US Treasury has, according to this piece, under four hundred billion dollars of cash on hand. And that's according to fiscal data.treasury.gov. Now the US government is supposed to the U.S. government uh, predicts that they'll need to borrow around $100 billion each month this year. And that's about – oh, God, I can't see this uh, – as documented by aboutbgov.com, President's Budget. And I know that sounds like an absurd amount of money. But you have to remember, we have more people now. This is not the same country it was in 1917. Let's get a little real here. You know, you can't buy a beautiful two-story house for $5,000 like you could in the 1920s. You just can't. So you have to kind of keep things in perspective. So what happens is when the U.S. comes close to the debt limit, the Treasury Secretary is given the, has the power to use what are called, quote, extraordinary measures. 
and the extraordinary measures are documented by www.treasury.gov. And these extraordinary measures uh, allow the Treasury Secretary to basically save cash. And the present Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, said that she'll begin doing these, using these extraordinary measures beginning on January 19th. Okay? Now, what are those measures? Not good medicine. One measure is, quote, temporarily not funding retirement programs for government employees. Now, that's as documented by Gover... God, I I really need new glasses. As documented by www.govexec.com, pay benefits, treasury... Okay, you get the idea. You can read the article yourself. Um, Keep in mind... The same members of Congress who are in fine with inflicting this pain, their pay won't stop. But temporarily not funding retirement programs for government employees. That means if you called uh, the Capitol, those retirement funds for, say, retired uh, uh, Capitol switchboard operators won't be paid. Okay? This is... Now... The expectation is that once Congress raises the debt ceiling, the government can make up the difference. Now, if the debt ceiling isn't raised before Treasury uses up all their options, quote, decisions will have to be made about who gets paid with daily tax revenues, end quote. You know the rich bees in the House and Senate, members of Congress, they'll get paid. But a lot of other people won't. Who gets paid? And at this point, borrowing any further, not going to happen. It's not possible. That means government employees can't borrow to pay them. Contractors may not get paid in full. Government employees not get paid. Loans to small businesses or college students, all that. No pay. You know, it kind of reminds me of the old Seinfeld series with the soup Nazi. No soup for you. This is what this is. No pay for you. Unless, of course, you're, I'm just going to say, a rich bitch member of Congress. All right? It's the truth. So just like anyone else, if the U.S. government can't pay all its bills, technically speaking, it's in default. Now, You've got Wall Street that's getting worried, economists, policymakers, um, thinking this can be a, this could trigger a major economic crisis. Interest rates could go up. Financial markets would panic. Maybe even an economic depression, as documented by Bloomberg. Bloomberg, sorry, dot uh, com, as well as PBS.org. Bloomberg is hardly a leftist publication. Now, under normal circumstances, usually you'd think, okay, markets panic, Congress and the president come to grips, and they come up with a solution. And that's what happened in 2013. These Republicans, once again, tried to hold the good faith credit of the United States hostage. And why did they want to do that? Because they wanted to defund the Affordable Care Act. Republicans wanted to defund The idea that lower and modestly income people would be denied health care. 
Think about the cruelty inherent in that. Okay, and this is as documented by the New York Times.com. Now, according to Pressman, they're saying these aren't normal political times. We're more polarized than ever, which is true. We are. Now, I've heard mainstream uh, media claim, well, you know, we have to we have to find a way to be civil to each other again. I disagree. You know, the reason why things are polarized, things have always been polarized. People that are financially comfortable, people that are white and Christian, those that aren't having to deal with this fallout, they don't understand why we can't be civil. Well, the, And they think in the past we were, we were able to get along. It's not true. We've always been this polarized. The difference was that in the past, lower-income folks, communities of color, and other groups that had been basically just tossed to the wayside didn't have much way to speak up. It was, they were kind of forced into, as the saying goes, to get along, what is it, uh, to go along to get along, as the saying goes. And now we're, refuse, we're refusing to do that. So I maintain we've always been this polarized. The difference is those of us who are lower income, modestly income, those of us in communities of color, those of us who are religious minorities, those of us who are uppity women, part of the LGBTQ, all these different communities, we refuse to back down this time. We're fighting back. We're not more polarized. Not at all. It's just for once, we're fighting back. So, and then you have McCarthy, who, Kevin McCarthy was desperate to become Speaker. So it is not hyperbolic to say, he bent over, I'm going to be a bit crude, spread those political butt cheeks, and let, you know, the MAGA crowd, the MAGA lynch mob have at him, and he didn't even get kissed. But he got to be Speaker. But in order to do that, he had to agree to hold the budget hostage using the debt ceiling limit to extract that concession that would savage Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And you think, okay, the MAGA morons, a lot of them are bigots. Why would they want that? Because they're being funded through PACs and dark money groups, and you trace the money back according to OpenSecrets.com, and it goes straight back to Charles Koch, spelled K-O-C-H. It goes straight back to another partially Koch-funded group, the Heritage Foundation. It goes straight back to the American Legislative Exchange Council. It goes straight back to, yes, mainstream GOP. Stop pretending that these things that Donald Trump wanted to do were just so anathema to mainstream GOP. They weren't. The mainstream GOP has wanted to destroy Social Security since its inception in the 1930s. Make no mistake about it. And I'm tired of hearing this nonsense. So then Pressman goes into the idea, is there a better way? I love the way he just structures this. He says there is. There is a possible solution. And according, and this is as documented by the New York Times.com, uh, Krugman blog.newyorktimes.com. This was dated back to 2013. Be ready to mint that coin. Apparently, there is a legal loophole. 
that would allow, quote, the U.S. Treasury to mint platinum coins of any denomination. And here's what Pressman suggests. I'm just going to read straight from it. Quote, if the U.S. Treasury were to mint a $1 trillion, with a T, $1 trillion, co- $1 trillion coin and deposit it into its bank account at the Federal Reserve, the money could be used to pay for government programs or repay government bondholders, end quote. And you think, well, how can they do that? Well, Pressman, look, there's Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. This is where it could be justified. You look at Section 4 of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, it says very plainly, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, end quote. Now, where on the GOP, where, where are those originalists? It says it right there. You can't question the public debt. Again, the public debt, the debt ceiling is debt we've already incurred. And a refusal to not lift the debt ceiling is a refusal to pay the bills we already owe. And their way to pay it is to basically renege on debt, on legal debts, to renege on payments that were properly contracted, such as Social Security. That's a legal and binding contract, and the Republican cure is to renege on that promise, to renege on that contract. Last time I checked, that's premeditation to commit contract fraud. Pressman goes on to say that very few countries even have a debt ceiling. Okay, and that's as documented by the world.org stories. Um, Pressman goes on to say, quote, a debt ceiling is dysfunctional and periodically puts the U.S. economy in jeopardy because of political grandstanding. The best solution would be to scrap the debt ceiling altogether, end quote. And I'm reading straight from this. He says it very well. Pressman goes on to say, quote, Congress already approved the spending and the tax laws that require more debt. Why should it also have to approve the additional borrowing? It should be remembered that the original debt ceiling was put in place because Congress couldn't meet quickly and approve needed spending to fight a war. In 1917, that is, cross-country travel was by rail, requiring days to get to Washington. This made some sense then. Today, when Congress can vote online from home, that is no longer the case, end quote. Very interesting, isn't it? It should be mentioned the author of this article from the conversation is Professor Stephen Pressman. He is a part-time professor of economics at the New School. Okay. That's number one. Number two, we're going to go to a group called the Revolving Door Project. Really interesting. Let me kind of scroll on here. Here it is. Yeah. Excuse me. This is a group that I find very interesting. The Revolving Door Project, what they do is they track the employment and the actions of present and former um, government servants, you know, legislators in particular, uh, anyone that held office, especially at the state or especially the federal level. Because what they do, they trade. 
know, on their knowledge of Congress and who owes them favors. So the revolving door project is very legitimate. And this is a piece by, and I'm I'm probably mispronouncing the author's name, and I apologize. It's a piece by Dylan Giosh Lewis. And it's under uh, a section of the Revolving Door Project, Hack Watch. The headline is, Hack Watch, the Fairness Doctrine Strikes Again. Media outlets are calling Republicans austerity pushes a debt ceiling showdown. And at the beginning of the show, I talked about how basically corporate media, not only are doing the horse race nonsense, but they're, do, they're pushing the false equivalency argument. Instead of actually dealing with what is the debt ceiling, letting the public know what it is, why it occurred, and what we can do to fix it, and who would be hurt by this. Okay? Uh, oh, excuse me. <coughs> and this particular piece is an edition of the Revolving Door Project's Hack Watch newsletter. So I, I like the first paragraph. I'm just going to read it straight through because it, it's just well-written, straight to the point. Get a little tea here. Quote, if you haven't heard, the United States government just hit its debt ceiling. It's borrowed as much as it can. Sort of. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Treasury Department has actually bought some time with some good old-fashioned financial finagling. Unfortunately... A number of media outlets are massively mischaracterizing the issue. The problem at hand is pretty straightforward. Republicans want to impose new spending restrictions that would make it much harder to have a working federal government. They also want to force cuts to Social Security and Medicaid. Their demands are largely unacceptable and cause real harm to the American public. End quote. I'm adding the real issue to me is the criminal intent of the GOP. So this article goes on and says, quote, in other words, Republicans are holding the global economy hostage and threatening to blow the whole thing up unless their demands are met by using a facade of fiscal responsibility, when in reality, allowing the United States to default is the least responsible fiscal decision imaginable, end quote. But then the article goes on to say you have these, and I'm not quoting them, you have these corporate media outlets, whether it's Meet the Press, Face the Nation, CNN, um, Bloomberg, whatever, and they're just they're determined to appear neutral and balanced. And you're supposed to report the facts. And in journalism, there used to be this idea that there were journalists that were muckrakers. They found the dirt and they exposed it. But and exposed it as dirt, and you can't expose it as dirt if you're going to be balanced. Because being neutral and balanced means that if you find evidence of wrongdoing, evidence of criminality, you can't publish that unless you find an equally weighted fact that says, nah, there wasn't. Which is nonsense. If the equal weighted fact actually exists, that's one thing. But when you find evidence of wrongdoing, the public has a right to know. So, a lot of media outlets are saying that damage will be done not by the Republicans' determination to default on debt we already owe, but on the deficit ceiling fight itself. Okay? This idea that, gosh, you know, we have this, this polarization 
of both sides. Well, of course we're polarized. <clears throat> you have the bigots of MAGA on one side. You have mainstream GOP that pretends they're not bigoted, but they let the bigots of MAGA do their dirty work for them, and they represent big money. You've got corporate Democrats that are too cowardly to tell the truth and fight for us, and then you've got progressives that are saying, no, we're not putting up with this anymore, we're going to fight. And the only way you won't have this polarization is if the people and if the, the, those of us on the left just bow out. That's how we've maintained this false civility all along, because the victims basically were so beaten down, we, couldn't, we, we really were unable to speak up and fight. You know, polarization is not good. I agree. But injustice is worse. I'd rather have polarization and have an honest fight than have this injustice that everybody knows exists but is considered okay because of a false sense of civility. But that's what's happening. So you have CNN, according to this author, Blaring, according to CNN.com, quote, every American could feel the pain of Washington's next showdown, end quote. Well, that's true. But it's not because of the fight. It's because the Republicans are willing to, to make the entire country default in order to destroy programs they know will help the average person that they hate. Because the Republican Party and, yes, corporate Democrats don't represent us. They represent the billionaire and corporate class. Okay? We have a dishonest government. You have CBS Morning, quote, warning about, quote, a dangerous standoff. Uh, this author quotes a piece from Bloomberg, talks about the subheading that, quote, the political fight has the potential to spook markets across the globe, adding to the economic turmoil facing U.S. investors, end quote. Well, you don't want U.S. investors to suffer, but let's be honest about this. The people are already suffering. I'm worried more about grandma not getting her Social Security check and getting everything she paid into it than whether or not some fat cat, rich bitch, gets their full payment from their stocks. Okay? But again, you see these mainstream corporate groups, you know, talking about Washington gridlock, um, you know, and again, this author points out the fact, yeah, the, all the Democrats, or almost all of them, are trying to fight back. Uh, two exceptions come to mind. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are not fighting back. They are basically siding with the Republicans, although Kirsten's no longer a Democrat. But this author goes on to say that the Democrats aren't really, how do I put this, they're fighting, but they're not fighting very hard. Okay, they're not they're not playing hardball. In fact, the author goes on to say the Democrats are quote fighting for. This author says quote the Democrats are fighting for the status quo, i.e. the continued implementation of the bipartisan omnibus spending bill that passed Congress last month and mandates spending through the end of September of this year, i.e. pass the debt ceiling end quote. Again, but. That's just, you know, it's, it's like trying to fight, uh, 
uh, a rabid tiger, you know, with a slingshot. It doesn't work too well. <clears throat> but again, this author is talking about how there's a misrepresentation that's being pushed by the corporate media. And it's bad because, to to quote from this article again, quote, the idea that the contest between parties itself is the problem implies that if Democrats just stop resisting Republicans' push to slash spending, the danger would be averted, which is clearly not the case at all, end quote. So we've got this going on. So we also, according to this author, have the um, mainstream media pushing this false equivalency, you know, between Republicans and Democrats, with Republicans pushing for more spending cuts, which really is about allowing the very rich to not pay any taxes, and Democrats pushing to fund the government up to a point and not destroy the global financial system. But all of this that the mainstream media, according to this author, you know, according to, what's his name again? Dylan Giosh Lewis, all this false equivalency and this, um, you know, misrepresentation of what the, what the story is. Um, he says, quote, also obscures a more relevant story. The fact that the debt ceiling is quite possibly illegal, end quote. And again, it gets into the history of the debt ceiling. Again, as we said before, it was established during World War One, um, And it had, you know, to fund the war, but it's been weaponized by Republicans pushing unneeded austerity. Okay. But according to this author, the debt ceiling might be unconstitutional. And there's several different uh, criterion that this author lists. Goes back again to the 14th Amendment. Aren't you shocked? Do you remember how Donald Trump wanted to revoke the 14th Amendment? Part of it was about, yeah, um, citizenship issues. But the 14th Amendment, if you ever get a chance to really read it, it's very long. And a lot of the protections that we've enjoyed just as regular folk go back to that. There's a reason why big corporate and the billionaire class want to get rid of the 14th Amendment. And this is part of it, I suspect. So the 14th Amendment uh, includes a clause that says, quote, the the validity of any debts. So it basically says the validity of any debts the U.S. incurred, in quotes, shall not be questioned, end quote. That means in the... If you're an originalist, in the time that that was written, shall not be questioned. In other words, you can't refuse to pay. That's what that shall not be questioned means in the time period it was written. How's that for originalism against, you know, the the uh, Republicans? And that's number one. Number two, there's, according to this author, a good case to be made, according to justia.com, which we're going to be talking about a little bit. Quote, that the president is legally obligated. I'm going to say it again. There's a good case, quote, to be made that the president is legally obligated to disperse funds as required by the budget, regardless of any quibbling about maxing out the debt limit. That's interesting. Now, why is that? Well, the spending 
it, authorized by Congress and then signed into law by the president um, that were that they're arguing about right now was apparently authorized quote more recently and more specifically than the debt ceiling, and it goes on to say quote and in law. Conflicts between laws are resolved in favor of the more recent and more specific law. He goes on to say, quote, sometimes there are nuances and good points on both sides of a debate. Sometimes balance coverage is a necessity, but other times there's one party sowing chaos and one trying to protect the people, the economy, and the world, end quote. Um, the author goes on to say, quote, horse race politics coverage may have a place, but this is not it. The basic truth is that there's no danger for from a showdown. End quote. Okay, so this is uh, interesting. So that's from the Revolving Door Project. Now I went a little deeper, and I found a piece that's older. Okay, and you know I mentioned Justia, which is a legal blog. Okay, and let me check our time here. Oh, we're good. we're good on the time, okay. So this gets in, you know, what is the, the old saying uh, from, what was it, from uh, Lewis Carroll? It just gets, quote, curiouser and curiouser. It does. So I found this piece from Justia, and it's their section called Verdict from Justia. And this was dated back to January of 2013. Remember, that's when the Republicans had another debt ceiling showdown. They were playing with the idea of, again, defaulting the good faith credit rating of the United States if um, they didn't get spending cuts to defund the Affordable Care Act. Now, we're not talking about wanting to defund, say you know, paying $5,000 for a toilet seat for the Pentagon. We're talking about defunding a program that brought health care to people that couldn't afford it. Think about not only how petty that is, how utterly savagely cruel it is. And, and the Republicans are the party of virtues? They call themselves pro-life? Uh-uh, no. Sorry, sweetie, you can't call yourself pro-life unless you're anti-war, anti-death penalty, um, for health care for everybody, for a living wage for everybody, uh, vegan. Okay. You can't call yourself pro-life because you're pro-forced birth. Doesn't work that way. And we need to stop letting these MAGA bigots and the GOP in general stop allowing them to name everything, to to steal the agenda, not not going to happen. No. Okay, so let's look at this. So the the headline, this piece was written by Neil H. Buchanan and Michael C. Dorf. And I'm scrolling down here. Let me give you something about the two authors of this piece in Justia. Neil H. I'm just reading straight from it. Quote: Neil H. Buchanan, an economist and legal scholar holds the James J. Freeland Eminent Scholar Chair in Taxation at the University of Florida's Levin College of Law. His research addresses economic and philosophical aspects of justice between generations, and he is particularly interested in policies that affect budget deficits, 
the national debt, health care costs, and Social Security. The other author, Michael C. Dorff, quote, is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell University and co-author most recently uh, of a book called Beating Hearts, Abortion, and Animal Rights. He blogs at dorfonlaw.org. So this is written by two lawyers and economics. So this was dated back to 2013, just via. The headline is, quote, what can the president do when Congress gives him a trilemma of unconstitutional choices, understanding why the president must exceed the debt ceiling, end quote. So, <laughs> excuse me, Obama was in session, was in office then. Okay, oops. I'm about to sneeze, folks. I thought it was. Up. Oh. All right. I'm going to take a little break here for a second. Let's see if I can do this. Put my intro on. Give you a little more here. Okay, I'm back. Ugh. That was a little miserable just there. Okay, so back to the show. Sorry about it, folks. I will get better at this technical stuff, I promise. So again, getting back to this piece in Justia by Buchanan and Dorf, 2013. Again, this trilemma of unconstitutional choices. Now, when have you heard in mainstream media anyone talk about the fact that the choices, which really aren't much of a choice, being forced by Republicans through basically holding the budget hostage with the debt ceiling issue, how often do you hear it referred to as an unconstitutional choice? With all the legal experts that they have on there, you know, a lot of U.S. senators, for instance, and a lot of congressmen are attorneys. They know better. You know, so whether it's Claire McCaskill on or um, as a former senator and an attorney, a prosecutor at that, or – you know, whether it is uh, Ted Cruz is an attorney, Chris Christie, who's an attorney, it doesn't make any difference. When do you ever hear them talk about how this is unconstitutional? They just give you the, well, it's a matter of interpretation. No, it's not. It's not a matter of interpretation at all. Don't fall for that. So back in 2013, uh, Obama, the Obama administration was being held hostage with the debt ceiling because, again, Republicans wanted to force, force the defunding of uh, the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, Obama said, you know, he had seen this movie before. He's not going to sit through it again. And 
basically these two authors, Buchanan and Dorf, are, you know, correct. It, it, you know, it, they're saying Obama's correct. It is both as policy and politics. Um, and, and again, though, neither, as far as I know, now I'll admit when I'm wrong, as far as I know, President Obama didn't bring up the fact that these choices were unconstitutional. Okay, should have. And again, if I find evidence that he did, I will amend that statement. Fair is fair, and I would do the same for a Republican. It doesn't matter. Uh, so the public discussion on all of this has been muddled, and there's two constitutional arguments that these authors talk about. Okay, first argument has to do, again, as we mentioned earlier, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. Okay, and back in 2013, that particular argument was, according to these authors, quote, summarily rejected by the White House, end quote. And the second argument is the trilemma. And according to the authors, quote, there is a second independent constitutional argument on which the White House could rely, reading straight from this. We developed that argument, which we refer to as the trilemma, during and after the debt ceiling debacle of 2011. It is not based on a little-known provision of a constitutional amendment, but rather on pure separation of powers enshrined in the central provisions of the Constitution. And the authors go on to say, interested readers can find the law review articles in which we lay out the legal basis of our arguments here and here. And uh, one of them they mention is the www.columbialawreview.org. Um, and the, the looks like the actual uh, title was, Nullifying the debt ceiling threat once and for all, why the president should embrace the least unconstitutional opinion, the least unconstitutional option, excuse me. So Columbia Law Review is hardly anything to sneeze at. I'm going to go that again. Their argument is on, it, quote, is, is on a pure, quote, separation of powers principles enshrined in the central principles of the Constitution. They go on to say, quote, in this column, we explain why a president must, as a matter of constitutional imperative, choose to issue debt in excess of the statutory limit if the budget otherwise requires him to do so. They go on to say, quote, we also explain why even Republicans in Congress should actually want the president to issue more debt if, con if Congress itself is unable to find a way to do its duty and increase the debt ceiling as needed, end quote. So they go on to say, understand, the next section is called Understanding the, the Trilemma, Congress's Powers, and the President's Responsibilities. And the reason I'm reading straight from this is because I'm not a lawyer, but also they've, they've really explained it very well, I think. So this section, Understanding the Trilemma, Congress's Powers, and the President's Responsibilities, quote, the President is required to faithfully execute the duly enacted laws of the United States. The financial operations of the government are authorized in the federal budget, which specifies how money must be spent and how it can be collected in tax revenue. These two powers, the powers of spending and taxing, are quintessentially legislative powers in Article I of the Constitution, thus gives those powers to Congress. Similarly, the power to borrow money is also bestowed upon Congress in Article I. Under normal circumstances, Congress's budgetary enactments dictate how much money to spend and on what, 
and how to collect money in taxes and from whom. In addition, if the authorized spending is greater than the authorized tax revenues, then Congress authorizes the president to issue debt, that is to borrow money to cover the difference. And I'm going on, just end quote, so I'm quoting straight from this quote. But the debt ceiling statute purports to limit the amount of borrowing that the government can undertake. Even though the spending and taxing laws themselves clearly limit how much debt the president can issue, the debt ceiling separately states how high the debt can rise. Okay. These three laws should not be in conflict, but Republicans in the last few years have decided that they can pass budgets with spending and taxing levels that require more borrowing than the debt ceiling allows. They then claim that the president must agree to renegotiate the already passed budget to reduce the spending as Congress is authorized, end quote. That last point I'm really going to emphasize, because this is where I believe the illegality rises, according to, in this instance, the Republicans, then, quote, they then claim that the president must agree to renegotiate the already passed budget to reduce the spending that Congress is authorized, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling in the coming weeks, it will present the president with what we call the trilemma. He can at most faithfully execute two of the three laws in question, but not all three, end quote. So what they're talking about is that in recent years, and notice they did this to Obama. They didn't do it to W. They did this to Obama. They Republicans pushed spending and taxing laws that they knew would go past the debt ceiling. So they set the president up saying, here, we know we passed a budget and it's more than we can afford. So it really is Congress, especially these Republicans. And then they're going to play chicken and just go, well, president, you're going to have to, you know, renegotiate the budget you already passed and signed into law. You know, that's basically like saying, hmm, Junior signed a contract to buy a car and the negotiated price, you know, for the monthly payment was, let's say, 400 a month. But, and everything's been signed off on and filed. It's all, it's a legal contract. It's done. But then the bank comes back and goes, no, you know what, Junior? No, we don't like that. We want 800 a month. You're just going to have to deal. You'll just have to give up eating for that month or whatever. That's what we're talking about here. That's the crap these Republicans are pushing, theoretically. It's maybe not as learned as what these guys talk about. That's, that's really what it boils down to. So – these authors talk about how there could be two of these three laws that the president could fulfill but, and execute, but not all of them. And they go on to say that the president, quote, could, for example, spend what Congress ordered him to spend and borrow no more than the debt ceiling specified. But that would mean that he would have to collect more taxes than Congress authorized him to collect. For reasons that are unclear, people in Washington have simply assumed that the president must choose a second option collecting no more in taxes than Congress authorized and borrowing no more than the debt ceiling specifies, thus requiring him to refuse to spend the money that Congress has ordered him to spend. Okay? 
end quote. So basically what it's like what I said, you know, the Congress put the president in a bind. So his choices are, well, he can uh, basically tax more than Congress authorized, which would be impeachable. He can't do that. Um, borrow no more than the debt ceiling re- requires, and then, then basically he'd have to refuse to spend the money that Congress authorized him to spend. It's Congress. It's these Republicans that are reneging, that are defaulting on already incurred debt. That's what this is all about. Make no mistake about it. The GOP, right now, back in 2013, and again now, these Republicans are refusing to pay what is owed. They are, with premeditation, defrauding on contracts, on budgets, uh, budgets of contract, when it's signed in the law. They're defrauding on contracts that have already been signed in the law, and then they're refusing to pay the bills. Period. Unless they get their way. Now there's a third way. And according to these authors, they think this is the way that Obama and future presidents should should go. Quote, we believe the Constitution requires the president to follow the third path. Collect the taxes that Congress owed, um, collect the taxes that Congress allowed, spend the money that Congress commanded be spent, and issue debt in an amount exceeding the debt ceiling. He should, in other words, obey Congress's budgetary commands and set aside the debt ceiling if it is in conflict with those commands, end quote. That's it, right there. Okay. Because the GOP has put into motion, put into play, a plan that is clearly unconstitutional and illegal. And not just unconstitutional, it, it's, it's criminal. They passed a budget that they signed off onto, and now they're refusing to pay the bills that were signed off onto. That would be, again, like you taking out a mortgage, Maybe your payment is 1500 a month. You signed off onto it, and then you decide, I don't want to pay. Not going to. You better give me a better price or I'm not paying. Now, neither you nor I can get away with that, but that's what the Republicans are pulling, in short. So, again, their third way is that the president can obey two of these three laws. Not all of them. When when the Republicans are threatening to shut down the government because they will not lift the debt ceiling, there's only a few things the president can do. One, collect the ta- quote collect the taxes that Congress allowed. End quote. That's perfectly legal. It's mandated. Spend the money that Congress commanded be spent. End quote. Again, perfectly legal. But you don't have enough money, do you? So the president has to do, in order to obey these laws, the president has to do that third way, which is, quote, issue debt in an amount exceeding the debt ceiling. He should, in other words, obey Congress's budgetary commands and set aside the debt ceiling if it is in conflict with those commands, end quote. And this, you know, they talk about how this is a separation of powers issue, okay? You know, the Congress has put the... Republicans in Congress have put a president in a position where one of those three things, no matter what he picks, he's going to be in violation of the Constitution. Through no fault of the president. 
So if anyone's in violation, it's the Republicans in Congress. Okay? So what, why are we looking at separation of powers? Because that's where the answer is. Okay? According to these guys. The answers to these questions, and the questions are above here. These guys explain, quote, can we, how can, indeed, can we say that one unconstitutional choice is more unconstitutional than any other? Okay? So the three choices by this showdown that Republicans are forcing on President Biden is, you know, he can only do two or three. He can collect the taxes that Congress allowed. He can spend the money that Congress said can be spent. Um but in order to do that, he's going to have to set aside the debt ceiling, which, again, would also be in violation, but he has no choice. And this is what we're dealing with. So these guys go on to say, quote, how indeed, quote, can we say that one, un- one unconstitutional choice is more unconstitutional than any other? Is that not akin to being a little bit pregnant? Like pregnancy, constitutionality seems to be a dichotomy. goes on to say, quote, and if Congress has put a president into a position where he must violate the Constitution, are all bets off with the president suddenly free to do what he likes, safely ignoring everything that a dysfunctional Congress has ordered him to do, end quote. You know, you have to ask yourself, this showdown right now, a trial run to let if God forbid Trump or DeSantis got in the White House to let to allow a runaway executive, we don't know. So they go on the separation of powers, and these authors go on to say, "quote The answers to these questions are all informed by the central importance of the separation of powers in the Constitution." Goes on to say, "quote The presumption by Beltway insiders that the president should simply cut spending." even though that spending was authorized by Congress, fundamentally misunderstands the high degree of discretion that such spending cuts would require. End quote. And it's true. You know, these mainstream corporate sources are saying, well, you know, he's just going to have to cut spending. You know? But that would, again, be a president violating the law, but he's put in that position because the real criminal are the Republicans in, in uh, the House under McCarthy. McCarthy's responsible for the MAGA morons pushed on him. Okay? So, the authors talk about the difference between budget cuts and spending cuts. And they say, quote, the difference is subtle but constitutionally essential. And I'm not going to get into this too much because I know this show gets kind of long. There are some key words in terms of legality that you have to look at, and one of them is authorized. So they talk about how cutting the budget really is about prospective legislating, okay? Where basically between the Congress, the House, and the Senate, and the President, they're talking about basically reducing future spending on certain programs, okay? Um Cutting duly authorized spending, however, quote, would see the president president altering the spending compromises that Congress has already made. So cutting the budget regarding 
but future budget items is one thing that you can do. You that's still negotiation. But what they're really talking about is the difference between when you're setting up a contract, if you will, and that's what this is, and then reneging on a contract after it's already been passed. And duly authorized spending, demanding that a president cut it because they're holding the the GOP is holding the debt ceiling hostage and they, and therefore our budget hostage, no, you can't do that. That's already something that's been signed into law. So, this is what we're really talking about here. Um, The Constitution, quote, requires that spending be made in full rather than up to a certain amount, end quote. These guys go on to say, quote, allowing the president to reduce spending at his discretion would give him legislative power that he should not wield, end quote. We're talking about authorized spending. It would be the equivalent of, say, let's say you are a superintendent of a school district and bond issues were already passed. Contracts were signed let's say, to build a new school. And the superintendent decides, "Mm, you know what, we're going to cut the spending on that contract we just signed to build that new school, so I have a little extra money for things I want. Eh, You can't do that. That is really getting very close to embezzlement. And again, it's not the president doing this. And I'm not a Joe Biden fan, okay? I wanted Bernie. But it's not Biden's fault on this one. It's the Republicans in Congress, and specifically, if there's a criminal investigation, it should be of Kevin McCarthy for allowing this. He's the Speaker of the House. It falls on him. And there are examples of this. You can't allow a president to reduce authorized spending that have already been passed in the law. It doesn't work that way. That's a legislative thing. And there were examples Richard Nixon, President Nixon, violated his authority. He tried to, quote, impound funds 40 years ago. Got him into trouble. Supreme Court, during the Clinton presidency, um, you know, said that even Congress itself can't give the president the authority to cut spending at his discretion through a line-item veto. Okay? You can't reduce spending across the board because some spending is essential at all times you know, to prevent disasters, whether it's military, whether it's FEMA, whatever. You can't do that. So, of course, spending cuts will be unbalanced. But what we're really talking about is authorized spending. You can't cut that. That's when when Kevin McCarthy says he wants Joe Biden, President Biden, to cut authorized spending for Social Security, Medicare, and so on, that is the legal equivalent of saying, hmm, Joe Schmo took out a mortgage, agreed to pay the full amount, and after signing all the papers, go, nah, I'm going to pay you half. Tough luck. You can't do that. That's what this is really about. So this is what we're talking about here. I hope you learned something from it. And now I'm going to tell you, you know, we're getting ready for our jackass of the week. I'm going to tell you, this was a hard one, okay, because honestly, when you look at the political class, there's so many of them. 
There just are. It's amazing. But this time around, I would say the jackass of the week. We need a drum roll. Drum roll, please. I need I need to play more with sound effects. I realize that. All right, so let's move on to our jackass of the well, well. You know what? Let me go back again before we get to the jackass of the week. I want to have a few final says. Okay. Keep in mind this whole thing is about how the Republicans from day one have always hated Social Security. They hate the idea that people who work hard all their lives and pay into a system, that's the only way you get benefits, would actually be able to live the remainder of their lives with some dignity. Okay, This is about how the very rich not only want to use and abuse us as beasts of burden, how they view us contemptibly. You know, this deals with this rolls into the whole idea with alleged Christians and the prosperity gospel. This idea that if you're poor, it must be your own fault. You know, it, it's not systemic. Well, of course, it's systemic. It's a stacked deck. We don't have competition. Monopolies have taken over. And now, the last thing, the the one thing that is the only retirement, like ninety percent of Americans will ever have. They want to attack. They want to destroy Social Security. You know, you see congressmen um, just go, well, you know, people just, they might like to work past 70. No, we don't. What we want is quality of life. This is a war against all of us. This is a a war that the rich or as Roosevelt called the economic royalists, have waged on us since the dawn of time. Make no mistake about it. And instead of arguing, we need to stick together. Those of you Republican voters, newsflash, it isn't just the people you don't like whose Social Security will be cut. Yours will be cut also. Make no mistake about it. This is about how the rich view themselves as superior to the rest of us. Even though the majority of wealthy people didn't earn it. Majority of the wealthy either uh, inherited their wealth and or they committed dishonest and illegal acts to acquire that wealth. It wasn't honestly acquired in in most instances. Let's get a little real here. We need to end this culture of celebrity. We need to end this idea that the rich should be idolized. No. If anyone should be looked at with disdain, it's very wealthy. If anyone should be questioned regarding not only their motives but their actions, it's the very wealthy. You know, make no mistake about it, I am proudly a leftist and I support Reverend Barber's uh, Poor People's Campaign. Enough's enough. And as for this claim that our problems is lack of civility, no, to hell with their civility. Their civility demands that the average working person just bow down, take the abuse, and don't you dare complain about it. We were always polarized severely. 
to claim that we weren't is nonsense. It's not only a lie, it's an incredibly stupid lie. Whether it was due to slavery, Jim Crow, the economic war on all of us, the Powell memo, so on and so forth, the polarization was always there. The difference is those of us that, that have been the most abused are refusing to just take it. We're defending ourselves. So when it comes down to a choice between whether or not we're polarized and fighting back for justice, or whether we bow down to this false civility that makes affluent white Christian males come more comfortable, I'm going to choose justice polarization anytime. Because at least that means that we have a chance of getting a fair deal. And I won't ever stop on this. So now we're going to go to our jackass of the week. Here we go. Welcome to Progressive News Network's Jackass of the Week Awards. Bray on, Jack, Bray on. This week, our jackass, we have a very special jackass. This one is not only a jackass, but a stupid jackass at that. And that is none other than, drum roll please, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. See, Ron Johnson, about a week or so ago, was on Meet the Press, and he was questioned by Chuck Todd. Now, I don't really have much respect for Meet the Press or Chuck Todd, because, again, he pushes the false equivalency. That being said, however, he has some pointed questions regarding January 6th and Senator Johnson's involvement. And Senator Johnson claimed that, he wasn't involved in the planning or the execution of the insurrection. He was just, his people were contacted by the vice president's office, allegedly, um, to hand all over some paperwork to the, pre- to the White House. Now, oh my God, this is so, so freaking stupid, it's unreal. All right, this is the political equivalent of some poor kid saying, saying, hmm, this dude told me to hold this bag. The bag contains meth, let's say. And you got caught holding the bag. That's what Ron Johnson did. He got caught holding the bag. And when Chuck Todd actually pressured him and kind of practically laughed in his face and demanded an answer, you know, basically Senator Johnson went this, you're picking on me. Chuck Todd went, well, you know, you can go back to your – you know, your chamber of like-minded people and complain there. And then that's what Senator Johnson did. Now, this goes back also to the idea that when the Fairness Doctrine was scrapped, it allowed for that echo chamber because no longer were broadcast entities, no longer, in order, is, no longer were broadcast entities required to provide a minimum amount of time that would actually have legitimate news coverage. It just didn't. And that allows for the rise of Fox, OAN, and all these other nonsense. And this is the problem all along. But when a U.S. senator says, well, 
I was just asked to pass this piece of paper. I wasn't involved. I'm going to use a bad word. Bullshit. Okay, that's not only a lie, it's an incredibly stupid lie. So, once again, that's why, and for many other reasons, why Senator Ron Johnson is our Jackass of the Week Awards. Bray on, John. Bray on, Johnson. Bray on. He never sounded more intelligent or looked more handsome. Okay, that's our show for today. I hope you learned something. Um, We're going to be talking about this more in the future. And we're going to keep fighting the good fight. If you like this broadcast, please, please forward it to everyone you know. We don't have a paywall. Um, I am looking into the idea of a YouTube channel. Uh, So once again, forward it to everyone you know. And with that, I say good night and God bless us because we're certainly going to need it.